Before we dive in, by way of reminder, if you haven't been here, um, or if you can't remember to like three weeks ago, um, going through the book of Acts, it's the second half of Luke's two-volume work. So Luke, the physician, um, the beloved friend of Paul, um, he wrote first the Gospel of Luke. Then, right in tandem with that, he wrote Acts. And so the book of Luke is this historical account of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And then Acts is the historical account of the disciples' journey and dealing with the question, now what? Now that Jesus has died, buried, rose again, now what? What do we do? How do we go and live our lives in light of the fact that the God of the universe just became a man and rose from the dead? <laughs> now what? And so the book of Acts helps us to be able to answer that question. And you might be thinking as a Christian, okay, I've confessed my faith in Jesus. I believe in him. Okay, now what? And a few weeks ago, what we talked about is Christian mission. That you and I, we were called to be witnesses of that which we have seen. That we have seen the gospel, the good news that Jesus really has died, buried, and rose again. It's something that we've seen. And so we are witnesses to that, like witnesses on, at, at, a, at a judicial stand. And the word for witness in the Greek is martus or martyr, that we're supposed to be living martyrs following after Jesus, witnessing to the gospel. And as we dealt with that question a few weeks ago, if you're like me, you might be thinking, I'm supposed to be a martyr for Jesus? That sounds really difficult. That sounds exceptionally hard. Thankfully, in this passage, we're able to see the power to be able to walk in the Christian mission. The power to be able to walk in the callings that you and I have from God. To walk as witnesses. And the power is found here. Look, look with me back at verse 4 of chapter 1 before we dive into the story. It says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So before they're to go out on their Christian mission, they're to go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. And then when you skip down to verse 8, it says, but you will receive power, the ability, the, the impetus to be able to go and do the mission comes from power when you receive the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, sorry. <laughs> Receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses or martyrs in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so, in verse 12, we pick up the story, and it says, Then they returned to Jerusalem. Jesus had just ascended up into heaven, taken into the clouds in glory. And the angels say, What are you doing? Go to Jerusalem. And so, they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem. A Sabbath's day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James, or like what Judas is called in the Gospels, Judas not Iscariot. So just so you know, not Iscariot Judas. All these were with one accord. All these 
with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own, lage, their own language, Akaladama. Guess is as good as mine. That is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one dwell in it and let another take his office. So basically they're recounting what happened to Judas after he betrayed Jesus. So he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He goes to the temple, he casts it down and they use the money to buy a field, but he's so distraught that he commits suicide by hanging himself and he hangs himself and then the rope breaks or something and he falls headlong and is dead and all of his guts gush out. That's what it's talking about. That's the sad end of Judas. Verse 21. So one of the men who accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So Peter stands up and says, okay, this happened to Judas. We need someone else to take his office. Let's find someone who has seen the resurrected Christ and has been with us ever since the very beginning when Jesus was baptized. And so... It says in verse 23, And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Lord, you who know the hearts of all, show which one of these you have chosen, which one of these two you have chosen, to take the place of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and they fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So Matthias is elected to take Judas's place as a part of the apostolic band. So, what does that have to do with the power of the Holy Spirit that's going to come and give them the ability to be able to walk in the calling that they have on their life to be witnesses? Here, we see three different things. First is the necessity of the Spirit. Then we see the functions of the Spirit in this passage. And then finally we see salvation through the Spirit. So first, the necessity of the Spirit. As you read this passage, this is one of the most amazing descriptions of the early church. Go back to the verse, verse 12. He lists all of the different people who are in this upper room setting. And it's literally like the all-star team that you can think of, right? Like you got Peter and John and James, the inner three that saw Jesus up on the Mount of Transfiguration, saw his clothes change to white and shine bright insane. Those guys were there. Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, Judas the son of James. These apostles, these disciples who had been with Jesus for so long. 
and also that Mary, the mother of Jesus, and also the women who are a part of the a part of the discipleship band as well. This is literally the greatest community anyone could ever be a part of, right? Literally, if you want to be a part of any community, you want to be the one that Peter's in, right? You want to be the one that John was in. This is incredible, united community. And here's the description that it says, that they were with one accord. That word one accord in the Greek is homothumadon. Homo meaning same, thumadon meaning like passion or heat or anger or things like that. Thanks. Sorry, yeah. Um, I'm saying that they were in one accord. <laughs> they were all of the same mind. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We are all homo sapiens, yep. So they were all of one passion. They are all of one accord, united together. Not only that, it says that they were in a, they devoted themselves to prayer. So they had genuine community. They were devoting themselves to prayer. Peter stands up and he exposits the scriptures. And then they decide to cleanse out the sin in their midst by electing someone to take, their, take Judas's place. This amazing description of the early church, these amazing, powerful things, were all of these things enough for them to come to a good decision about who to replace Jesus? Were all of those things enough for them to be able to decide, yep, this is the right next step, and we're going to choose Matthias to take the place as number 12 on the apostolic ban? I argue, no. I argue that this whole thing that they did was a mistake. And here's the reason why. We read it in verse 4. What did Jesus tell them to do? He had spent 40 days with them. Luke could have recorded any number of things that Jesus said while he was with them for 40 days. And what was the one thing Luke decided to record? The one thing that he decided to say? The one thing he said, this was the most important thing. From the 40 days the resurrected Christ was on earth. Go to Jerusalem and wait. Don't do anything. (laughs) Stay put until the Holy Spirit comes. Go wait. What do they do? They go and they decide, you know what, we're going to go ahead and elect someone to go and fill up this space. And they were up there for 10 days. There was 10 days between uh, this and chapter 2. And so they called Matthias up and they're like, all right, we're going to do this and we're doing all these other things. They did the exact opposite of what Jesus told them to do, which was to wait. Not only that, the, uh, the apostles were selected by Jesus himself. Jesus is the one who selects his apostles. It isn't something that is selected through the casting of lots. Now, I read some commentators who say that this was actually a right thing to do. And they say in the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs, it says that the lot is cast into the lap and the Lord number, has its number. And in other words, God even controls this. And so it's a reasonable way for, for them to select the next, the next uh, uh, apostle. And so they say, yeah, so Jesus, God was kind of selecting it through the casting of lots. Here's the problem that I have with that. First, Jesus told them to wait like I just said. Second, the casting of lots is never used in the New Testament as an adequate way to make decisions. Never used, because it was superseded by the coming of the Holy Spirit. So 
that doesn't make any sense. And not only that, the third reason why I think that they were wrong is there happens to be someone else in the book of Acts who was commissioned directly by Jesus himself. And in fact, that story is recounted three times in the book of Acts. That you probably know is the story of Paul. First, Saul switches name to Paul. A bright light shines. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus who you, whom you are persecuting. And he says that you will go and teach and proclaim my name in front of kings and in front of the Gentiles and all this incredible things. And what does Paul do when he begins all of his letters? He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And to kind of top it off, in 2 Corinthians, the church at Corinth was questioning his apostolic authority, and he throws down by saying, I am an apostle. <laughs> I think it's safe to say that Paul is meant to be the 12th apostle, and in fact, these guys were stepping out of line in entering into this by saying, now, Matthias is going to replace Judas. So all that's to say is even though they had incredible community, they had a powerful prayer life, they had Bible exposition, they were cleansing out the sin in their midst by living holy, all of those things were not enough for them to come to a, a, a righteous decision, the right decision. In other words, we need the Holy Spirit. All of those things are not enough. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it definitely could, but I would say that some of the other disciples are, are also not mentioned apostles. So I, I, that, that is definitely a possibility too. Paul's like all over the place, so it's kind of like, wow, well, I mean, Paul's kind of MVP right now. So like, I think that can definitely contribute to it too, for sure. Um, but what this is showing is that all of these incredible things are not enough. We need the Holy Spirit in order to be able to walk in the callings that we are meant to do. To walk as witnesses, to fulfill the mission. And so what Luke does is include, in including this story is he is saying, he is saying all of the things that the apostles are doing throughout the rest of this book is not because they were righteous, not because they prayed enough, not because they knew the scriptures well enough, not because they had better community than we do, not because they were holier, holier than we are. Everything that they did was simply by the grace of the Holy Spirit. Only because of the Holy Spirit. And he puts this in here right before the Holy Spirit comes just to say, listen, this, everything that's going to happen has nothing to do with them. And that gives me hope. Because I know I don't have as devoted of a prayer life as they do spending 10 days up in the upper room. I know I don't have as, as, as strong of a holiness that, that they have, walking in holiness like they did. I, I know I don't have enough. But God's grace is the thing that matters. And it's the Holy Spirit that comes, not because we've done something good, but because he has done something gracious. They messed it up from the very, very beginning. And the other thing is, is we do not compel God's Spirit to come. 
when I was reading the, the commentaries that were saying this was a good thing, they were saying, this is what you need to do in order to be able to get the Holy Spirit to come. You gotta have devoted prayer life. You, you, you gotta be holy. You gotta be in community. You gotta um, do, be, have rooted in the Bible with biblical exposition. You gotta do all of these things and then the Holy Spirit will come. We do not compel the Holy Spirit to come. He is God. He does what he wants. He's not a force to be manipulated. He's a person to be known and loved. And we do not manipulate him or force him or compel him to do anything. We rest and wait and receive for his movement, not our own. Which again gives me hope because that means the Lord can work among us. Because if you think that you're weak and failing like I think that I am weak and failing so often, turns out where we are weak, he is strong. Now you might be saying, okay, Stephen, the necessity of the Holy Spirit, I get that. We need him. All of those things are not enough in order to be able to compel God's Spirit to come, not enough to change our hearts or to, or, or to grow, to make the right decisions or all of those things. We need the Holy Spirit. Okay, but what does the Holy Spirit actually do? And what I think is beautifully ironic is where we are weak, he is strong. In this passage, we see that all of these things that I just mentioned that fall short to compel the Holy Spirit or fall short to change our lives, those are the places that the Holy Spirit actually works. Here's what I mean. Genuine unity, being of one accord in community together. Throughout the New Testament, the Holy Spirit, this is one of its functions, is to bring about unity. You might remember the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, unity of the Spirit, the fellowship in the Spirit. Ephesians 4, you are born of one spirit. There might be a diversity of gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, but one spirit. Over and over again, the spirit is the thing that brings unity. And so while our community is not enough to compel God, when Jesus does come, when the Holy Spirit does come down and move in our midst, what he brings is unity. It's not the other way around. Our unity does not compel the Holy Spirit to come. The Holy Spirit comes and brings about unity. None of that. It's the next thing also. What the Holy Spirit does is he comes and he brings about devoted prayer. And Romans chapter 8 says the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf with groanings that cannot be uttered. He gives us the ability to be able to pray. Our prayer does not compel the Holy Spirit to come. The Holy Spirit comes and prompts us to pray. And then the next one after that, living in holiness. The Holy Spirit is the one, it says in Romans 8 also, we will mortify the sins of the flesh through the Holy Spirit. By the Spirit, we'll mortify the sins of the flesh. And then finally, biblical exposition. One of the Holy Spirit's roles, what he does is he comes and he brings illumination, is the technical term. John, 4, John 16 says that the Holy Spirit brings us, he will guide us into all truth, which means he helps us to be able to understand. And so just on a practical note on that one, if you're reading the Bible on like your own time, and you're not sure what it says, ask the Holy Spirit. Literally just say, Lord, help me to understand this. I do that every time that I study the Bible because I know I can't understand it on my own. And I know there's a lot of things that I don't understand. And so instead I say, Holy Spirit, 
help me to understand this. Because that's literally one of his functions. One of the things that he comes to do. If you want to walk in the Spirit, you say, Lord, help me to be able to understand this. Or help me to be able to pray. Help me to be able to live in unity. Help me to be able to mortify the sins of the flesh. That are all things that the Holy Spirit does. So walking in the Spirit looks like asking God to help us walk in those things. So, the necessity of the Holy Spirit. All of those things are not enough to compel the Holy Spirit to come, and all of those things are not enough to be able to change our hearts, but instead the Holy Spirit works in our weaknesses, and all of those things, the devoted prayer, the um, biblical exposition, the unity, and the holiness, all of those things is what the Holy Spirit inspires us to be able to do. But finally, what this passage shows, and we're getting close to being done, is salvation through the Spirit. This passage shows that the disciples, they were still very weak. They were still inept. They were still bumbling along, even after seeing the resurrected Christ. And what this teaches us is is our salvation is not because we're smarter than other people. It's not because we're holier than other people. It's not because we're wiser than other people. It's not because we're more disciplined than other people. It's not because we repent better than other people. We are saved. Our salvation is because of what the Holy Spirit has done in our hearts, because of what the Holy Spirit does in our minds. Some of you might have come tonight and you're thinking, I'm trying to be a Christian. I'm really trying to do the right thing. And that's what you think it means to be a a Christian. And I'm telling you, it's not. It, what it means to be a Christian does not mean now you're trying. Now it, does, it doesn't mean that now I'm trying to do the right things. What it means to be a Christian is you've now received what Christ has done for you. It means that the Holy Spirit has come inside of you, it says in Romans 8, and by the Spirit you cry out, Abba, Father, which means, Lord, I just accept you as my Father, as my Lord. It's not because I've done something. It's because of what Jesus has done for me. And here in this passage, we see Judas. You see, Judas, he turned his back on God, he rejected Jesus, betrayed Jesus, and he hung himself. And that was the, that was the result of his rejection of Jesus. And the reality is, is when we reject Jesus, that is what we deserve. That is what we deserve. But the reality is, is when we accept Jesus, when we say, Lord, I just accept you as my Abba Father, what did Jesus do? He hung in our place. And a spear went through his side, and blood and water came out. He stood in the gap for those of us who have rejected Jesus. And so you might be thinking, I've rejected Jesus. I've done the wrong thing. I haven't done the right thing. I'm constantly sinning. You are the person that Jesus has come for. You are the person that Jesus wants to get. And he's coming, he's saying, I have died on the cross for you. And it has nothing to do with what you have done. It's not because you were wiser, smarter, or anything like that. It's not even the strength of your faith that saves you. I give you the faith to believe in me. That's what it says in Ephesians 2. Did you know that? Your faith is a gift of God. It's not even your faith that comes from you is why you're saved. Jesus gives you the faith, and then you respond in faith. Everything from the very beginning is because of God's initiative towards you. 
because God has come. We love him because he first loved us. And so my heart for everyone here tonight is that you would know that you're not good enough to be saved. You're not. If you're trying, give it up. Please. Because if you don't, you will ride your good deeds to hell. Instead, give up your good deeds. Give them up. Let them go and say, I accept Jesus alone. And some of you now have heard me say this for two and a half years. And yet, and yet after two and a half years, you're not walking around in joy. You're not walking around in worship. And here's the reason why, I think. Wow, this has never happened in a teaching in my entire life. Whew, okay. I think some of you are like me. Wow. Whew. Literally, this has never happened before in a teaching. I'm so sorry. <laughs> some of you are like me, and that is, you've heard that before, and you said, okay, great. Yeah, salvation is by grace. But then you've misunderstood the doctrine of assurance. And the doctrine of assurance answers the question, how do I know I'm saved? How do I know I'm saved? Really, how do I know? And, and here's the answer I got my entire life. And the crazy thing about it is it's technically true. <laughs> here's the answer. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, you will know a tree by its fruit. And so... Here's what pastors tell us. Here's what pastors have told me. If you want to know you're saved, look at your fruit. Are you producing the fruits? That's how you know that you are saved. Or you go to 1 John chapter 2. If you love me, you will keep my commandments and you will walk in the light. So if you love me, in other words, if you're saved, you will walk in the light. You will be obedient. You will know a tree by its fruit. And here's what happens if you're like me. You heard that and you went, okay, here's what I got to do. I got to obey. I got to do the right thing. I got to love people. I got to do this. I got to do that. And that's how I know I am saved. And that's what you've then rested your salvation on is your post-conversion obedience. And here's the reality. If you are, after your conversion, obedient, obeying God in order to be able to secure your salvation. Did you follow that? If you, after conversion, are obeying God in order to be able to secure your salvation, then you are being nothing but selfish. Nothing but selfish, just like me. No better than a cat climbing a tree trying to get away from a dog. So in that moment, what that means is, is that you're not producing fruit. Your tree is dead. If you are obeying in order to secure your salvation, you don't understand salvation because you are fundamentally, and I am fundamentally, selfish, self-protecting. Do you see that? So, what do we do? 
If you, like me, get in a place of where you're analyzing your obedience to make sure you've done enough in order to be able to secure your salvation, then you haven't understood salvation and you go back to the gospel. You go back to the good news. And you say, I am saved not by what I've done, but because of what you have done for me. Because you have been obedient in my place and you took the punishment that I deserve. I should be hung on a tree because I haven't even produced a single fruit, a single melon, nothing. You've done it in my place. And that is the only reason I'm saved. And I stand on nothing except for Christ's grace. If we live our lives trying to produce fruit in order to be able to secure our salvation, we have not missed, we, we, we don't even get the gospel. We've, we've understood nothing. So in that moment, we have to go back to the gospel. And what's amazing is when you look at 1 John chapter, chapter 2 and you read it carefully, where it says, if you love me, you will obey me and you will walk in the light. What is the light in the Bible? Is it my moral virtue? When I read that, that's what I thought it meant for almost my entire life. That if you love me, you will walk in the light. You will be morally virtuous, perfectly, have perfect integrity. Nothing will be in darkness. You will be obedient. That's what I thought it meant. But then I thought for a second, what does John, the same author, say is the light of the world? Who claims as the light of the world? Jesus himself. Jesus is the light of the world. So what it means to walk in the light means to rejoice in the gospel. It means to rejoice in what he's done for me. Rejoice that he loved me enough to die on the cross for me. That makes all the difference. I honestly don't know where this is coming from. I'm sorry. <clears throat> And so what I want you to know is that you're saved by grace. And you can walk in joy. And you can actually worship. Because for the first time, you're not doing something for yourself. know the gospel. Rejoice in it every day. And it will change your life. So Lord, I pray that you help us to walk in the gospel. Thank you that our assurance comes not from what we've done, but from what you have done for us. And that we walk in the light, the light of the good news of your grace. Pray that we would all know that. So we love you. We thank you for the good news. 
We pray this in your name. Amen.